I love that song. I'd want it every week. I text Levi a few times. We can still sing it again. If you have your Bibles, would you open to Matthew chapter 12? We're going to look at 38 through 45. Matthew 12, verses 38 through 45. Are you ready? I'm pumped. Okay. Starting with verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees asked him, answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Let's pray. God, I need You. We need You to speak to us. Please help these words to come alive. Help there be to a, a message that falls upon our hearts that draws us near to You. And I pray that if there is anyone in this room that doesn't know You, that You would save them. And I pray for those of us that do know You, that You would bring about a filling of Your Holy Spirit that is so powerful that the world sees how great You are and that we can enjoy You with all of our hearts. Amen. There is nothing greater in my life than my relationship with Jesus. I can honestly say that. Though I have gone through times where there's mountaintop experiences and valleys, Jesus is everything. There is nothing greater than God. And that is something that the whole Bible preaches. And we've seen it especially in the Gospels. As we go through the Gospel of Matthew over and over again, the teaching is clear that Jesus is Lord and there is no other God. He is the Messiah that has come 
to save us from all of our sin. And I don't know about you, but when I'm sitting out there and I'm listening, which is most of the time, like last week when I was listening to Pastor Bob, I get so excited. I, I literally was sitting, I shift back and forth on my, street, on my seat. I don't think it's just because I have ADD. <laughs> but I keep moving back and forth and I go, yeah, yeah. And it's almost like I'm watching Michael Jordan playing basketball because I get really excited, when, or I used to, when he played. But it's even greater than that. And I seriously, when, when Bob was preaching, I wanted to get up at certain times and just go, yes! That is so good. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's just a personality thing, but I think the main reason is, is because the Holy Spirit is inside of me and it's hearing the Word proclaimed. And it's saying, yes! That is who I am. This is good news. And so when we come this morning, when I'm preaching right now, when I've labored over this message and I've looked at it and I'm trying to relay this message to you, I'm trying my best to look at what God has said in this Word and just relay that message to us. So that that same experience could be happening through you and it can take root and change us to be more like Him. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So our passage this morning is just continuing where we left off last week. It's a big section. There's a lot of stuff going on. And for us to understand some of these main points where we're going this morning, I want to go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 12. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to recap some of these things to get a good idea of what is going on here. What is the foundation that Jesus has already laid for us? If you remember, at the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus is walking through grain fields with His disciples and they got hungry. So what do they do? They started grabbing some grain. They started to eat it. It was on the Sabbath. Pharisees are watching Him like a hawk. Isn't it unlawful for you to be plucking the grain and eating it on the Sabbath? Jesus looks at them. He rebukes them with a few different things that He says. One of the things that He says is, Don't you know that even the priests profane the temple on the Sabbath? I'm Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus tells them. And one greater than the temple is here. I love what Jesus does next. After telling them one greater than the temple is here, what does He do? He walks into a synagogue. Temple. Same day, man with a withered hand is there. And he heals the man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees are up in arms now. They're looking at him. They're like, they, Jesus knows that they're thinking, it's unlawful to work. It's unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus tells them, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus always said, I have always preached that the issue is the heart. That's the reason why I have all these laws. I want your heart to know me. I want your heart to be filled with me. But the Pharisees who were blind as bats, they just wanted to plot a way of how they were going to destroy Jesus. And so Jesus, knowing that, being God, He leaves. Many people follow Jesus, and it says that Jesus healed all of them. And as he's already departed, and he's with these people, they bring before him a demon-possessed man who was mute and blind. And Jesus 
cast the spirit, the evil spirit, out of the man. And then the man was able to speak, and he was able to see. And all the people looked at him and they marveled. Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one that we've been waiting for? Pharisees and the scribes hear what's going on. Blind. They're hard. They don't see the miracle that's happening right in front of them. And they say, no. No. This is definitely not the one that we've been waiting for. He's casting out demons with the power of Satan. The power of Beelzebub. Beelzebub. The prince of demons. They attributed Jesus' power to Satan. They said that Jesus casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul. And Jesus is not going to allow any such accusation to be made against him. Jesus said that Satan would not cast out Satan with Satan because a house divided against itself would not stand. As Pastor Bob pointed out last week, Jesus quoted Isaiah 5, which they would know really well. It says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. Pharisees knew this text very, very well. Jesus was blatantly, once again, declaring that He was God in the flesh. And if He was God, casting out demons, He tells them, then the kingdom of God is before them. And this is so huge. We're going to come back to it with the last three verses that we have today. But he says, and not only did he declare that his his identity again to the Pharisees, but he gave them a severe warning. A warning against blasphemy. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The unpardonable sin. He says, you can attribute some of my works, or you may attribute some of my works to Satan. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, if you attribute the works of, of the Holy Spirit to Satan, you will not be pardoned. You will be destroyed. It is an unpardonable sin. Basically, what he's saying is that if the Holy Spirit has revealed the Son and the Father, the Messiah to you, in such a way that it is ever so clear that you should know who I am, and you attribute those works and that power to Satan, you will not be forgiven. It goes on to tell them that a tree is known by its fruit. If the tree is good, then the fruit is good. But if the tree is bad, then the fruit is bad. And the Pharisees were producing bad fruit, which indicated that they were bad trees. He calls them You brood of vipers. One would think that after the Pharisees had witnessed these miracles, miracles of healing, they knew all that had gone. I mean, look for chapters and chapters now. He's raised dead people to life. He's cast out demons. He's healed people. He's performed all these miracles in, in front of these Pharisees. That they would know, this is the Messiah. This is the one that has come. But there's people around them that are seeing it. Their eyes are open. They're ready to accept Jesus for who He is. But not the Pharisees. 
And then our passage continues in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. (laughs) This is the same passage. This is the same group of people. He just cast out the demon. He just did all this stuff. We want to see a sign from you. What in the world are they talking about? A sign. You'll see another miracle? It helps us a little bit um, in the translation in Mark. Because it says, a sign from heaven. Maybe we could distinguish it something like this. A miracle is the power of God working through man on earth to perform some power that God has given him. But a sign from heaven, they want to see something that's directly from God. We want to, we want to, see, we want to see God do something here. Maybe, maybe like Moses talking to the burning bush, God's right there. Maybe they want to see the stars arranged in such a way where it says, Jesus is the Messiah. Listen to him. Directly from heaven. But the truth of the matter is is that these Pharisees weren't really on the verge of becoming Christians. They were just trying to trip Jesus up. Jesus knew that. If God would have done that arrangement, Jesus had the power to do it. They would have probably looked up there at those stars and said, Isn't that amazing? God caused all those stars to come together in such a way that it formed some words up there. And the rest of the people would have been, oh yes, he's God all the more. They, they, they would have just continued to praise and, and accept him. But those Pharisees, they wouldn't have. They would not have accepted him. They were wickedly trying to discredit Jesus over again. There's a sarcasm and a deceit in their request. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Jesus had the power to do what they were asking. But morally, he couldn't do it. I like how MacArthur put it in his sermon. He said, Jesus could have done it because he is God. But he couldn't do it from a moral viewpoint because he is not in the business of bowing to sinners. Morally, it was impossible to grant to these who hate Christ. Signs are not given to the highest bidder. The Pharisees rich. The Pharisees look great. They were high in society. God's not going to bow down to them. The signs are not for demand or show. Jesus is not a genie. He can't be deceived, and He will not cast pearls to swine. But there have been times when Jesus chose to perform miracles in order to bring someone to the faith. We remember this in uh, chapter 9 when Jesus healed the paralytic. Starting with verse 1, chapter 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. This is in the book of Matthew. He came to his own city and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, That's key right there. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. (laughs) Over and over again. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. I heard this testimony one time of a man who was on the verge of accepting Jesus. And he's, and he's, in, a, he's in a church service, sitting in a, in a pew. And he's like, God, I, I, I want to I wanna come to faith in you. Would you just spell it out for me if you want me to become a Christian? And it just so happened that that Sunday was a Sunday for a children's service. So all the kids were up in front of the church, and they began to sing a song. You know what song it's going to be? You know. I know. My mom knows. I am a C. I am a C-H. I am a C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. And I have C-H-R-I-S-T in my H-E-A-R-T, and I will L-I-V-E-E-T-E-R-N-A-L-L-Y. And the guy's like, God, I think you just told me that. But just in case, that just happened to be that way. God, would you have a man come before, come forward in the aisle and start doing push-ups? I heard this. I heard this testimony. I have no reason to believe it's not true. Shortly thereafter, a man got up, came forward and started doing push-ups in the aisle. His mouth dropped. Received Christ. I believed. I, I knew you were. Thank you so much, God. I talked to that man after the service, and the guy said, I don't know what came over me. This isn't how I usually am, but for some reason I was so moved that I needed to go up in the aisle and do push-ups. And he did. There seems to be a big difference in the heart with that guy. In the heart with the people where the paralytic was, than what the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus wants people to be saved. But Jesus wasn't about to submit to those brood of vipers. Continuing, verse 39. But he answered, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. So we've already heard Jesus over and over again tell him, you guys are evil. You guys are going to be judged. Now he adds adulterous generation. We understand this perfectly. The Pharisees and the scribes, they were the Jews. They were God's chosen people. They were supposed to be married to God. But they're not falling for Jesus. They're not falling on their hands and knees to worship Jesus. They're not accepting the Messiah, the very one that all of Scripture is testified for. So they have left their marriage covenant with God and they committed spiritual adultery. In striving to be law keepers, they broke the very first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. They put their religion and their morality above their relationship with God. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. They were whitewashed tombs, flawless on the outside and lifeless on the inside. Verse 39 continues, Jesus talking. But no sign 
will be given to you, given to it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus told them, I'm going to give you one more sign. It's going to be the sign of Jonah. What is he talking about here? Well, we know. We know the story of Jonah. We, this is exciting for a couple different reasons. I know everything is exciting. I say everything is exciting. Jesus right here is saying that the book of Jonah is the word of God. That's number one. That's exciting. And he's saying that the story of Jonah is a picture of his death, burial, and resurrection. This is huge. Why the book of Jonah? Why, why, is he t- why is he using this story in that situation with those scribes and Pharisees? Jesus not only is going to proclaim who he is as the Messiah, that he has come to save, that he has died for our sins and rose again, but he's going to slap these guys in the face. He's going to show them that there were people that repented and put their faith in Christ that had much less information and much less of a reason to put their faith in God in a sense than they had. Remember the story of Jonah. He was a prophet to the northern tribes in Israel during the 8th century B.C. and during the prosperous reign of Jeroboam II. And God called Jonah to go and preach a message of judgment to the people in Nineveh. That's in Assyria. They were the pagan people. They had many gods. They were not a clean people. They were people who were not God's chosen people. And Jonah did not want to go and preach this message. But God says, no, I, I, I am calling you to go over here and go do this. So what does Jonah do? We all know the story. He gets in a boat and he goes the opposite direction to run away from God. And God causes a big storm to happen. And the boat's going all over the place and the people are all scared they're going to lose their lives and start throwing everything overboard. But it's not working. And Jonah knows. He's conv- I mean, you got to... I wonder what the conviction was inside his heart. It must have been horrible. He tells him, look, I know that the reason why all this is going on is because I'm disobeying God and I'm telling you, other fishermen and people, if you throw me overboard, you're going to be saved and the storm's going to go away. They didn't, they didn't want to do that, so they could continue to try to get rid of things in the boat, but it wasn't going to happen. So eventually they listened to Jonah. They picked up Jonah. They threw him into the ocean or the sea. And immediately everything became calm. And God, well, we see God's sovereignty in everything that's going on here, appoints a big fish, a great fish, to come and swallow Jonah. And then Jonah stayed three days, three nights, in the belly of the fish, And then God told that fish, you spit Jonah out, and he he or she, I don't know, spit Jonah out onto dry land. And I think at this point, it's clear, Jonah realized God's in control. He has to do what God has called him to do. And so he goes on his couple days journey to Nineveh. And he preached in the streets what God had called him to preach. Do you remember what he said to these godless people? We don't know much about it. It's possible it could have been a longer sermon, but we get 
at least the gist of it. Maybe it was only these words. Yet forty days and forty nights, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. (laughs) And there was revival. The people repented of their sin. In fact, that message reached all the way up to the king of Assyria. And he repented. And he put out a decree that everybody is to turn from their evil ways. And God saw their repentance. And he decided not to destroy them. And they were saved. And we know that it wasn't only a military victory in the sense that that they were saved, that they weren't going to be taken over by another nation, but they were saved eternally, spiritually. Because as we're going to find out, they're going to be one of the ones judging alongside with Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes. We need to see throughout all of Scripture, our God is a God of mercy. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to all who would put their faith in Him. Jesus told the Pharisees and scribes who were asking for a sign, He continues in verse 41, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus declares once again, something greater is here. Remember, He told them earlier that He was greater than the temple, and now He's telling them that He is greater than the prophet Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. Jesus is God. Jonah was a sinner. Jesus is sinless. Jonah preached one message of judgment. Jesus preached judgment, the forgiveness of sins and grace, and He performed miracles in front of their very eyes. Jonah was in the belly of fish for three days and three nights and spat out. That's impressive. That is very impressive. But compared to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, not as impressive. Taking upon the sin of the whole world, death, and then coming back to life so that we may have life. Jesus is much more than Jonah, yet the pagans turn from their evil ways at Jonah's preaching, and the religious Pharisees condemned Jesus and attributed his works to the power of Beelzebub. Jesus told the Pharisees that the men of Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment against their generation. And remember, just a few verses earlier, verse 27, he also said that the next generation after the Pharisees is also going to rise up in judgment against them. He's telling them, you are going to be judged. It is clear. They have hard hearts. They're not going to accept Christ. And Jesus knows that. Jesus is making a clear distinction that those who have a relationship with Him will one day judge those who do not know Him. Jesus continues, verse 42, The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. It's a good uh, chapter to read. First uh, Kings chapter 10, if you want to read about um, the Queen of the South, also known as the Queen of Sheba, coming from the area of probably Ethiopia. She was very rich, prosperous, once again a pagan area. People who did not know God 
And she heard about Solomon and his greatness, the king of Israel. And she brought on all her entourage and they traveled, it says, from far off just to speak with King Solomon. And when she got there, she was so impressed at the magnificence of his kingdom and all that he had. And then she brought forth all these different questions and he not only answered everything she wanted to know, but even more. And she placed her faith in the God of Solomon. Once again, Jesus reminds the Pharisees and scribes of yet another time when a pagan person was saved by faith, having been exposed to even less of the truth about God than they had. And Scripture tells us that Solomon was the wisest man ever to have lived and is ever going to have lived here on earth. Solomon was wise, but Jesus is wisdom. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus makes it clear. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the prophets. And He is wisdom. But the Pharisees remained blind. And they were evil trees producing bad fruit. They were not for Jesus, and therefore, they were against Him. There is no neutrality. We're either for Him, or we are against Him. It is foolishness to deny Christ. God has revealed Himself in so many different ways to us. God created us, and He is worthy of all of our worship and praise. And I can honestly testify, once again, I'm telling you, there is nothing greater in my life than Christ. I often wander away like Jonah. And then because the Spirit's inside of me, like Jonah, grabs me and pulls me back to knock it off. He loves us. He does that. But we need to accept Him. We are creatures who are going to worship. We are either gatherers or we're scatterers. We're either for God or we're against God. We will fill our lives with worship of God or... We will fill our lives with worship of that which brings death and destruction. Jesus hammers this home in the last three verses this morning. This is going to be a tough one. Okay, we're going to the last three verses here. They're pretty confusing. Let's look at them. Verse 43. Same picture. Jesus is still talking with the same people as far as we know. We don't know what dialogue was in between or if it just went right into this. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Do we see the clause there? He ends so also will it be with this evil generation. That's the theme throughout the whole thing. He is looking at these Pharisees and is telling them, that is how it's going to be with this evil generation. I am telling you the truth. Listen to me. I am the Messiah. I love you. Accept me. And there's people around that are hearing this. And they're repenting. And they're being saved. And then there are those that aren't. And their end is destruction and death. 
what in the world is going on in this passage? I, I read and listened to a lot of stuff, and even some people were just like, if anybody knows what this passage means, I go to this guy because he teaches me, and even he said, I'm not too sure exactly how this passage is applied in here, but he does a whole sermon. I mean, there's stuff we could pull out of this, but it's hard. Um, but I think in the context of what's going on here, I think Jesus is telling us a few different applications. So pray that I don't confuse you big time right now. <laughs> okay. So what we have is an unclean spirit. And we don't know exactly why the unclean spirit leads this person. We're going to take a few different guesses here in a little bit. But for right now, we know this. We know that the unclean spirit leads a person for whatever reason. And it's a restless spirit because it's looking around for a place to rest. It says it's going through waterless places. And I've been thinking about this a lot. And I'm thinking what it means when it says waterless places. It means a place without water. I'm very confident on that one. <laughs> I don't like desert. No, okay, I'm not. I'll stop. I'll stop. I don't want to go there. But we can say waterless places, we could think like, okay, maybe through the air. Demons traveling through the air, different places. Um, waterless, maybe it's not fruitful like abundance. We think of places that have lots of rain and water. We look at it as plus. Things grow. Places you want to go to. But for whatever reason, this unclean spirit is restless. Not like the peace that comes from the Holy Spirit, right? That, that would be the opposite. This spirit is going around. It's looking for a place to go. Can't find anything. So what does it do? It, it comes back to its house. Okay, we, we remember this. We talked about a house last week inside a man. And we're talking about a house again. We all have houses inside of us. And the spirit comes back and there's a key word that comes up next. You know what the key word is? Empty. The Spirit finds that the house is empty and put in order, swept clean. This is a good place to dwell. It goes out and gets seven more unclean spirits, more evil and horrible than itself. And they come back and they rest in that house and possess it. And it says that the state of that person was worse than the first. And then Jesus says, so it will be with this evil generation. I have to speculate a, certain, a few different things, and I do not want to say something wrong, but I'm picturing in my mind Jesus looking right at the Pharisees and the scribes as he's saying that part. So will it be with this evil generation. But all in the meantime, you, you realize these Pharisees and scribes were the ones that translated. They're the ones that explain to all the people that follow how to interpret the Scriptures. They're the ones that said, you want to know about God? You want to know what it means to, to love God and worship Him? Follow our lead. See how we're doing. And they're sitting there trying to get people to go the other way. And Jesus is condemning them. He's calling judgment on them. And the other people around, I think he's also warning. I think we can look at this and say, Jesus we know 
went around and cast out demons out of lots of people. Go back to chapter 8 where uh, Brad preached and the demons rushed down to him and they identified Jesus for, for who he was. And he says, they said to, to uh, Jesus, the demons inside, said, what will you have of us, son of God? They identified him. They knew who he was. They knew that he had authority and Jesus cast them out of the, the two guys into the swine and they left. And Jesus went around doing what? Proclaiming the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. When that happens, he's casting out demons and causing them to go different directions. Okay? But then when the evil is gone, there's an emptiness that you have to fill the void with. You can't save yourself. You can't live a certain life where now that evil things have been rid of in your lives, you're going to try to live a life of morality in such a way that you're going to save yourself. You can't be a whitewashed tomb and be saved. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They don't have the filling of God inside of them. They don't know God. Jesus had to come in and bind the strong man that was inside and cast it away. Remember verses 20, 28 and 30. This is from last week. It says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus has come to cast out unclean spirits, which gives us the opportunity to accept Jesus as Lord. Accepting the truth that He is God, that we are sinners, and if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that all of us who are Christians have the temple of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And this is something that is so reassuring to those, those of us that are Christians. If we're possessed by God, we have the Holy Spirit indwelt in us. Satan can't be there. He's never going to be there. Once saved, you're always saved. The power of God is upon you and in you, giving you the ability to grow in Him and love Him so that seven more evil demons can't come back and come back inside of you so that you can't be controlled by something else. I think Matthew chapter 3, verses 1-11 through 11 help us to understand this idea that not only do we need to identify the fact that we need to repent, that we're sinful, but that once we repent, we need to fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. We need to accept that into our lives. We see this when John the Baptist is preparing the way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair 
and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the, jo- in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So there's a confession going on here. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Listen to this. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Yeah, you repent. You you preach morality. But now you need to bear the fruit which only comes from the Holy Spirit. So we continue. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you, this is John saying this, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We need to repent and turn from sin and be indwelt by the Holy Spirit or else we are just empty houses. Listen to this really good paragraph by Frederick Dale Bruner, a commentary that I read. The warning of the return of the unclean spirits is pictorial commentary on Jesus' earlier warning against neutralism. Quote, The person who is not with me is against me, and the person who does not gather with me scatters from me. End of quote. Neutrality toward Jesus is an empty house. Unmoved belief in Jesus is merely swept but unoccupied home. Mere interest in Jesus with no commitment to him, is a house in danger of haunting. Empty, neutral, externally Christianized people sooner or later find their little passions. From civic clubs to sports. From politics to parlor games. Insufficiently filling. For our own good, therefore, Jesus summons us to fill the house to join the church and to take her worship services seriously, to appropriate our filling by the Holy Spirit given us in Christian baptism, and to become Jesus' disciples in the world of our work. For our empty, swept, tidy houses will be filled sooner or later by something, because houses are for occupancy. The question is not, will I become involved or not? It is, with what shall I become involved? For life is a series of involvements, whether we like it or not, and Jesus is trying to save us from demonic, obsessive involvements and to bring us into the little community of saints, the fellowship of disciples, the Holy Catholic Church, and her mission. I know this is kind of a long sermon here, but I think this is an important story. I have uh, a close friend of mine that used to preach um, the gospel um, that I believe might still be saved. I don't know. He got a divorce. Um, 
and he became an alcoholic. And he struggled with it for quite a long time. And he said, Alan, I prayed over and over again, God, would you deliver me from my alcoholism? Would you cause it just to go away and make it leave? But God never did that. And then I went to an AA meeting, and I've been there for a while, and I've been clean for a while. And now I, I don't know if Jesus is I don't know if Jesus is really who he says he is. He never free he never he never cleansed me. He never he never helped me to get rid of my alcoholism. And I asked him, I said, Well, do you think it's possible that all your prayers brought about the AA meeting that helped you to get rid of your alcoholism? Do you think maybe God worked through that in your life? He said, No, God would God could have just stopped it right there. And so now, as far as I know, he's still in a state of not knowing if Jesus is who, who he says he is. I don't know if he's saved or not. I, I'm not God. But the problem is, is that if he is a Christian, I, and we all need to hear this. This is just an analogy of, of someone that was an alcoholic. Jesus is the only one that can cleanse us from unrighteousness. Jesus is the only one that can sustain us. He is the only one that makes us more righteous and holy. He is our only hope. All other avenues will lead to dissatisfaction or destruction sooner or later. We can't fill ourselves with our own morality and be saved. He can, if he's a Christian, he can have the Holy Spirit in him and right now just be struggling and grappling. We see it all through the Psalms. Sometimes we go through different periods in our, in our life. And if the Holy Spirit's in you, it's never going to let you go. But until you come back and yield to God and say, God, I'm sorry, I repent, and you start filling yourself with a Spirit-filled life, you're never going to be satisfied. You're not going to be producing the fruit God's called you to produce. You're not going to be proclaiming His name for others to see and know Him. You're going to be living a lie. It's not going to be good for you or anyone else around you. For those of us who are still breathing, Scripture says that Jesus has come that we might have life and that we might have it to the fullest. There's nothing more satisfying, more valuable than to live a Spirit-filled life. And contrary to the restless life of the unclean spirit is the Spirit-filled life. Ephesians 5, 15-21 Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, but for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then we see the fruit of what comes with being filled with the Spirit. The picture of it right here. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Right? We just got that from out of, out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence. For Christ. Galatians 5.1 For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm therefore, and do not submit again.
through a yoke of slavery. Galatians 6, 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Be ye filled with the Spirit that we may love God and one another. Our submitting to one another out of love is a proclamation to the world of Christ's love for the Father. Let's have communion.
I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. We need Jesus. Saw a lot of people over the last few days. Um, seeming like their their faith and their hope is in a lot of other things other than Christ. Staking a lot, a lot on on different political issues and many, many, many different things. As as our own church body here together, we have such a mixture of us in here. All different ages. Different uh, uh, maturity in the faith. And He wants us to love each other. know exactly what I want to say. It's the same thing that's said every single week in different ways. But this word is truth. And I'm not very good at relaying giving it whenever I preach. But hear and take take heart the word that we need to not be neutral. That is a message of love. We need to be filled with His Holy Spirit. And we come together at the table right now, falling, falling flat on our face, saying, I am a sinner. We think about the sins that we've committed. We know our place. We know God's place. And we thank Him. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. And it's only by His body being broken and blood being shed that we can put any of our hope. And on the night uh, before Jesus was betrayed, He was with His disciples and He took the bread and He broke it. He said, this is my body which was broken for you. As often as we meet together to break it in remembrance of his broken body for us on the cross. Let's take it. After taking the bread. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please stand. There's a treasure great and beauty, far surpassed.
Refreshments in the back, and again, just a reminder for the ladies, uh, 